for the past four weeks now, the elders of our church, which I'm a part of, have been meeting three days a week at 6 o'clock in the morning. And we've been meeting with the sole intent of revisiting the foundational truths that make us a church, what our church is built on, truths that help us create our vision, which is life in Christ for every Alaskan in the world beyond. Our vision fuels our mission, and our mission, as it currently stands, is to make disciples of Christ who enjoy God fully together, are being transformed together, and then demonstrate life in Christ together. Our vision and our mission and our value and our core practices are fundamental to who we are as a church. And this week, as we reflected back on these foundational truths, I was struck by the memories, memories of what it was like for me when I heard these truths for the first time when I came to Change Point 10 years ago. So over the course of the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take a high-level look at the three core values of our church, our mission, which is to enjoy God fully together, to be transformed together, and then demonstrate life in Christ together. I like to think about our three core values as three sides of an equilateral triangle. Because although each side may be positioned differently, each side is of equal value, and there's no one single side that is more important than the other. All three are vitally important, and each one is affected by the other. I want you to think of our values as, as, as a triangle because that shape is easy to remember, and I think it represents well-balanced truth, our values. It's our values that propel us forward into God's mission for our church. Enjoy, transform, demonstrate life in Christ. Today I want to talk about the first of these three values, and it's, it's the value of joy, enjoying God. So I've titled the message today, Enjoying God Together, Living in Truth. Enjoying God fully encompasses two primary truths, family. And the first is experiencing the, the wonder of his presence. And the second is experiencing the richness of his kingdom. Everywhere we look in the Bible, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is saturated and literally packed with the expressions of the covenant presence of God and the kingdom purposes of our God. From the very beginning, in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, we, we see the first expression of this narrative of the presence of God when the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and it was void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, the, the, the presence of God, moved upon the midst of the waters. And that goes on for five straight days. This pattern continues. God speaks. God moves. God's presence is prominent and things change. Then on the sixth day, God creates man and he breathes into man the very essence of his spirit, his presence on the inside 
of us. And then he comes down and he communes with us in the cool of the day, every single day in the garden, the wonder of his presence. We are created. We were created to enjoy God. Then God says, I've not only created you to enjoy my presence, but I've also created you with a purpose. And he tells man, go and be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. Purpose. Presence and purpose from the very beginning of time. We fast forward now, we go to the New Testament scripture. And the New Testament also begins with presence and purpose, as we find in Matthew chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the birth of Christ. And then down in, in verse 23, Matthew writes of the angel Gabriel who visited Joseph in a dream. Going back to the prophet Isaiah, he says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us presence. Why did he come? It says, you call his name Emmanuel, God with us, for he shall save his people from their sins. Kingdom purpose. The book of Matthew ends with Jesus giving us his parting words. He tells us to go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you. And he says, lo, I'll be with you always. Go and do purpose. I'll be with you always. Presence. Hmm. Join God fully, family, is living in truth, the truth that joy abounds in both the promise of the presence of God where life begins and the fulfillment of purpose where life finds its completion and fullness. For every follower of Christ, our lives are lived between these two relational realities. The privilege to enjoy God is not based on our behavior. It's not based on our own goodness. It's not based on our own righteousness. The opportunity to enjoy God is not dependent on our commitment to serve and obey him. God's provision is based solely on his character and his covenant commitment to us, his children. He loves us. He enjoys being with us. And, and enjoying him fully begins with our passion to love him as he loves us. Because he loves us. And so enjoying God fully begins with our passion with loving him back and for loving him back. And it brings me to my first point. This is the truth. God wants to be my greatest love and not my highest commitment. God wants to be my greatest love and not my highest commitment. That's how we learn to enjoy God fully. In October of this year, my wife and I are going to be celebrating our 34th wedding anniversary. Yeah, I know. That makes me smile when I, when I say that. 34 years, right? And I have something planned, you know, and I'll, so I'll let you in on it. You know, I, I plan on taking my wife out to dinner, her favorite restaurant. 
God, buying her some flowers, you know, giving her a gift, you know, sitting down across the table with her or from her in the candlelight and looking her right into her eyes and telling her, baby, all these things that I've done for you, done with you, is because I'm committed to my relationship with you. How in the world would you think that would go over? Baby, I'm, I'm committed. I, 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 I'm committed to, to my relationship with you. That's why I do what I do, because I'm committed. I see you back there laughing, Brandon, because you know. And here's the truth. Commitment honors me. It honors the person who's fulfilled the obligation. Commitment honors me when I, when I fulfill that commitment. Love honors the one on which it is lavished. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 10 or chapter 18, verse 10, he says this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. Say so one was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself. That, that term in the Greek literally means that he was praying to himself. So he's standing by himself and he prays, God, I thank you that, that I'm not like all these other men, extortioners and unjust and adulterers. Or even like this tax collector standing over here. I fast twice a week. I give my tithes to the poor of all I get. But the tax collector standing afar off in reverence to God says, I can't even lift up my eyes to heaven. He says, be merciful to me. Why? Because except for your grace and your love and your mercy towards me, I am a person that is still in sin. I'm a sinner. And here's what he's saying. Lord, I know I don't deserve your love, God. I'm here because I find great joy in being loved by you and loving you in return. You see, commitment honors the person who fulfills it. Love honors the one on which it is lavished. So maybe you're here and, and you've been in part of a culture where you were taught that enjoying life in Christ begins with duty and commitment. But listen, I'm here to tell you that experiencing the joy-filled life that's found in Jesus Christ has never been based on commitment or duty. In fact, most often what will happen is commitment will drive us the other way. It will drive us the other way and have a totally opposite effect on us. Working in the church, being busy, before you know it, you're isolated, you're discouraged, you're stressed. Commitment does that. Yesterday I was at a place, I was sitting in a barbershop waiting to get my hair cut. And, uh, and I'm having a conversation with a young lady who told me, she said, you know, all my life I had been in the church, and right now I could care less really about going to church. She said, my whole life was spent in church. I know God, I know of God, but I'm burnt out 
on the church. See, I was from a child, I was in church. She has a Pentecostal background like me. So I just ran it off to her. She said, yeah, that's me. I said, so that means you was in church Tuesday night, church night, Thursday night, Bible study, Friday evening, youth service. Saturday, she says, yeah, well, Saturday, you know, I was the administrative assistant for the pastor. She said, and I also served as the secretary, so I had to be in church at the church on Saturday. Oh, and then that's not it. Sunday morning, 10 o'clock Sunday school, 12 o'clock noonday worship, 6.30 p.m. in the evening, corporate Bible study, 8 o'clock p.m. in the evening, 8 o'clock in the evening on Sunday, the start of the Sunday service. And you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. If you're in the black church, black folk don't know how to get out of church on time. Burned out, man, because of commitment, duty. Commitment and duty don't honor God. God wants to be our greatest love and not our highest commitment family. And God invites me to find and receive everything in him. Luke chapter 12, verse 34, we find Jesus saying this to his disciples, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, I was born and raised in Alaska, and, and tales about Alaska, you know, they, I, there's so much that we don't know about this great state. So I was looking online the other day, and, and I know Pam and Pelzetta were in the office, and they heard me just scream because I just, this, this was amazing. I never heard this before, right? In 1896 was the start of the great Klondike gold rush. And, um, and, and because we didn't have the benefit of modern technology, we didn't have cell phones or, you know, email, voicemail, all that stuff. Because we didn't have, you know, advantage, the benefit of that, then it took a year for the news of striking gold to reach what we now know as a continental United States. A year. So check this out. So it wasn't until the following July of 1897 when steamships from Alaska, this is, this is Alaska history now, when steamships from Alaska docked in San Francisco and Seattle, disgorging 68 ragged miners carrying, huh, carrying more than two Tons of gold in suitcases, boxes, blankets, and coffee cans. It wasn't until then that the outside world caught the Klondike fever. The amount of gold in circulation had dropped, helping to cause a deep economic depression that had been eating at the United States for 30 years. The Pacific Northwest had been hit especially hard, and people were tired of being poor. Many who had jobs quit them for the promise of greater reward. Streetcar drivers abandoned their trolleys. A quarter of the Seattle police force walked out. Even the mayor resigned and brought a, a steamboat to carry passengers to the Klondike. In addition to the boat passage up to the, the Yukon, there were at least five trails being touted as the best route to the gold fields, but three of those were so long and hazardous that only a few men ever succeeded in reaching the Klondike alive on them. The two most heavily traveled routes began in Skagway in the neighboring town of Daya. Now check this out. Check this out. 
In the fall of 1897, the most popular pathway was the 550-mile Skagway Trail over White Pass. Now, at glance, it seemed the less demanding of the two. It climbed gradually, which meant that, in theory at least, pack animals could negotiate it. <laughs> but once on the trail, the miners found it nowhere as easy, easy as it looked. It led them through mud holes big enough to swallow an animal, over sharp rocks that tore at the horse's legs and hooves, across cliffs of, of slippery slate where the trail was a scant two feet wide and a 500-foot drop awaited any animal or miner who made a misstep. A 500-foot drop. Okay, okay. So... Two feet. Two feet, man. 500 foot drop. <laughs> you feeling that with me? Why would people do this? Why would people do this? Watch this now. People do this when there is a hope of obtaining something greater than what they currently possess. Matthew chapter, 30, or chapter four, 13, verse 44. Everybody say, slow down, pastor. I believe I will. Thank you very much for that encouragement. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Jesus makes this statement. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and looked around, saw nobody was looking, and he covered it up. And then in his joy, everybody say joy. And then in his joy, he goes out and he sells all that he has to buy it. Why? Because people People invest in things that they believe brings a hope of obtaining something greater than they currently possess. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, he says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Fullness of life. Enjoying God fully. And here's the point. The joy-filled life begins with knowing Jesus Christ. The joy of recognizing that there's nothing to fear because the holy requirement of God has been satisfied in Jesus. The joy of discovering that I'm forgiven in Jesus. The joy of being aware that I can confess my sin and that forgiveness and mercy and grace are available to me. The joy of realizing that I no longer have to live under the guilt and the shame that the enemy wants to perpetrate on me. Joy of knowing that I don't have to be in control of my life because God has a purpose and a plan for me. And he's promised to be with me always. His promises and his purposes are sure for my life. God invites us to find and receive everything in him. Everything that I need can be found in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And every single thing that you need can be found in your relationship with Jesus Christ. The joy-filled life begins with knowing him. To my final point, in 16 
46 and 47, in an attempt to bring two churches together, the churches of England and the churches of Scotland, English and Scottish theologians got together and wrote what we now know as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I love how John Piper rephrased that statement in his book, Desiring God. And this is a quote from Piper's book. He says, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Last Saturday, not this past Saturday, but the Saturday past, and my grandson comes over on the weekend. That's a time filled with energy. At the end of the day, yeah, uh-huh. At the end of the day, I'm spent, man. I mean, that... Four-year-olds, they have a lot of energy, especially four-year-old boys. So, you know, he's going from toy to toy to toy, and so now he's on his bike. He puts his helmet on his bike, and he looks at me and says, Granddaddy, let's go for a ride. I said, okay. So I jump on my bike, you know, and I'm, I'm riding down the road with him. And he says to me halfway down the road, he says, Granddaddy, let's go to the park. And I said, all right, let's go to the park. That's just right around the corner. So we ride over to the park. We park our bikes. He gets off the bike, and he beelines over to the swing. Now, you know, last year when he was three, he had to get a little kitty swing for the little kitties, you know, the ones, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, the ones that, that they got the legs on the inside, which kind of look like a diaper, you know, that one. So he, but he beelines past that, and he goes to the adult swing, and I'm watching him, and I'm taking joy in him, pulling himself up by the chain and positioning himself on the seat. I'm like, look at this. Go, boy. So, so he gets on the swing, and he's trying, to, he's trying to swing, but he's too light. He can't swing on the adult swing. He's too light. I want, you, I want you to keep that in mind. He's not heavy enough. So he says, Granddaddy, will you come by? Will you come and, and will, you, will you push me? I said, yeah. So I go over to the swing, man, and I'm pushing him. You know, we're talking. I'm pushing him. And, you know, he's laughing and, and pushing him, you know, and he's swinging. And so I come around the back and I get to the front because he's swinging pretty high. You know, I'm looking at him, and he's got this big smile on his face. He says, Granddaddy, I need you to stop me. I said, I said, stop you? He said, yeah. You know, his little feet couldn't touch the ground, you know, so he couldn't stop himself. So, so I go to stop him, right? And I, I get behind him and I stop him. And I go to the front. I said, what's wrong, man? He said, nothing's wrong. He said, you know what's really fun? He says, if you get behind me and you push me as high as you can and let me go. Now, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that might be fun for you, but if you fall off this swing, I got to deal with your daddy and your grandmother. You know, so, so, so once I get past my fear, you know, I say, okay, man, we're going to do this. I said, are you ready? He says, yeah. I said, are you ready? He says, yeah, man, I'm ready. I'm ready. So I grab him and I push him, right? And the swing goes high and it comes back down. And I'm in front of him now and I'm looking at him. He's got this big grin on his face. So then I get behind him. He says, you got to go higher, higher, granddaddy. So now I get behind him. I push him a little higher. After a while, it gets to the point where, where he says, you got to push me higher. And, you know, you can push the swing so high. I don't know what it's called scientifically. But you get up there, and the, the swing kind of, like, snaps. It kind of pops, you know. You know what I'm talking about? So, so the swing gets up there, and it, it snaps, and it pops. And, my, and my, my, my grandson is looking at me. He's like, whoa, 
He's just loving himself. He's enjoying himself. And watch this. I'm enjoying myself watching him enjoy himself. I believe God enjoys watching us enjoy him. I believe God is glorified most. Glory, the the word glory in the Hebrew means weighty. I believe the weight of God and the glory of God is so, so uh, overwhelmingly experienced by us that we can't help but to be satisfied in his presence. And we, when we are satisfied in him, is when he's most glorified in us. Lance, you can bring your team up. I believe God wants us to experience a life that's brimming with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, filled with the wonders of his glory and his grace, a a joy-filled life that's substantive and weighty and full of value and meaning. When we experience God's presence in that way, it fills our heart and our life with joy. And then as I reach out and begin to, to, to follow in the purposes of God for my life, my joy even increases more and more until it begins to spill out and overflow into everything that I touch. Jesus came to provide that joy-filled experience for us. He came so that we can enjoy that kind of life. It's the life that we were meant to live, family. It's the life that we were meant to enjoy. A joy-filled, rich, thick life, full with rich, thick, intimate relationship with God and with each other. Listen to me, family. As we grow in relationship with one another and we become a people, a community who loves God and loves each other, we will experience what it feels like and what it looks like to enjoy God fully together. I'm hungry for that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word that brings life. The psalmist said in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. May we experience being in your presence, walking out your purpose and experience the life-changing, life-transforming joy that can only come from relationship with you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.